and it is a particular delight to kick off our fall season with the 2021 Huldrych Kammer Memorial Lectureship. For those of you who do not know, Dr. Huldrych Kammer touched countless lives as a role model physician, a pioneering endocrinologist, a gifted teacher, and a true lifelong learner. One of the first full-time doctors of endocrinology in Oregon, Dr. Kammer was soon considered the city's leading endocrinologist. He also served as associate director of the internal medicine residency at Providence Portland Medical Center for over 30 years, and also as professor of medicine at Oregon Health and Science University. Over the decades, Dr. Kammer uh, trained hundreds of students, residents, and fellows uh, who benefited not only from his love of teaching, but his passion for lifelong personal scholarship. He was also admired as a mentor to fellow physicians, and he published seminal work and contributed greatly to the modern era of endocrinology. And it is in his honor that uh, I am really happy to uh, have the privilege of introducing today's speaker, and that is Dr. Dolores Schoback. She is Professor of Medicine at University of California, San Francisco, and also Staff Endocrinologist at the San Francisco VA. In addition, serves as Associate Director of the Diabetes, Endocrinology, and Metabolism Fellowship Training Program at UCSF. Dr. Schoback earned her medical degree and completed residency at Johns Hopkins before doing fellowship training uh, in endocrinology at Harvard. Dr. Schoback joined University of California, San Francisco in 1985, uh, where her clinical interests focus on metabolic bone diseases, parathyroid disorders, and osteoporosis, though she maintains an active clinical practice, including attending on the general medical service at the VA. Uh, Dr. Schoback is also very much engaged in research, um, focusing on aspects including mechanisms underlying the regulation of parathyroid hormone, as well as its use in the treatment of osteoporosis and hypoparathyroidism. She has co-authored over 130 papers, reviews, and editorials, and Dr. Schoback has held many leadership positions, including current secretary-treasurer of the Endocrine Society, and has participated in guideline development, including the management of primary hyperparathyroidism, as well as the pharmacologic treatment of postmenopausal osteoporosis. Uh, as you can imagine, we are absolutely delighted to have her with us today to share her expertise and her passion for teaching. Thank you so much, Dr. Schoback. And I'm happy to turn it over to you. Thank you very much, very much, Dr. Locher. Can you see my slides okay? Looks perfect, thank you. Okay, it is really an incredible privilege for me to speak in honor of uh, uh, the memory of Dr. Kammer. And uh, really judging from what I've read about him and what you've said, it can, it's clear that he was really a beloved and dedicated, almost larger than life clinician and teacher here uh, at your medical center and, and active up until really the day literally that he passed away. So really an inspiration to, to all of us. <clears throat> My topic is going to be um, optimizing uh, osteoporosis therapy. This is just a picture and I will make one comment. Um, 
And Dr. McClung uh, had sent me some remarks uh, about uh, Dr. Kammer, and he described him as the consummate uh, clinician and clinical endocrinologist, learning about classic disease long before hormone assays became available and recognizing disease on the basis of history and exam that was later confirmed by lab testing. So really the consummate clinician. And I can't help but comment on uh, his service of over 30 years as Associate Director of Internal Medicine. In this age of instantaneous burnout, it seems incredible that someone could do that job for over 30 years. So it's a real, it's a real privilege to uh, honor his memory. I have no disclosures or conflicts with regard to this lecture. And so, as I said, um, my, my focus here is to talk about optimizing osteoporosis therapy. And it really focuses on uh, several sort of key concepts. The first really is sort of the judicious use of medications, the older medications that we know a lot about, and now the newer medications, and using them in logical and effective sequences of therapy for our patients. I'm going to touch very briefly on two sets of guidelines that are very current, the one from the Endocrine Society, and you can see it was published a year, two years ago, and then the other from the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists. Sort of themes that come out of those guidelines are risk stratification of patients, how important that is in our approach to therapy, and then really aligning our decisions on therapy to that individual's fracture risk. I want to touch on a concept which is gaining a lot of traction in the field, sort of called imminent fracture risk, and then turn in the final part to sort of exciting trial data on some sequential uh, regimens for therapy with the anabolics and both the baloparatide and romosozumab are the new ones uh, in that um, uh, regard. And uh, what I'll try to do is sort of focus on the best uh, therapy sequences to maximize anti-fracture benefits. So I want to frame this um, discussion in terms of a patient uh, whom I saw a few years back and whom I still continue to see. When I met her, she was a 57-year-old woman who'd come from the hospitalist service uh, at UCSF after an admission for severe back pain due to a fracture. As she told her story while she was walking to work, she's a, a nurse practitioner in one of our clinics, she leaned forward maybe about five degrees and heard this loud pop. Uh, coming, she thinks, from her back, and that was followed instantly by severe back pain at the waist level, 10 out of 10 sharp, radiating down both of her legs to her feet. She went on to work, but two days later, she presented to the screening clinic for pain and muscle spasms. She was given some cyclobenzaprine with some relief. At that time, she had no motor or sensory complaints or incontinence. Three days later from that, because she was unable to work due to the pain, she presented to the emergency room uh, and x-rays were done confirming a compression fracture of L1 and she was admitted for pain control and further evaluation. And so you can see her CT scan here on the left and her MRI on the right. And I think you can appreciate she's got about a 40 to 50% compression of L1 with a retropulsed superior end plate fragment of bone here in the spinal canal. When we look at the T2 weighted fat suppressed MRI, uh, the radiologists tell me that the intensity of this signal on these sequences tell you that this is an acute fracture. When they looked uh, on the scout films, they saw no other 
um, lesions, no lytic blastic lesions specifically. They felt the cord signal was normal. There was no cord compression. There was no epidural hematoma. But they also noted a 40% T7 compression fracture, which you can't see on these images. So here we have uh, this 57-year-old woman. She'd been healthy uh, the rest of her life. She'd never used any steroids. She had menopause at a normal age, 50 to 51 or so. She did have some rib fractures at the age of 53. She fell over a coffee table in her living room and another after being tightly hugged. With that in mind, her internist did a DEXA scan which diagnosed osteoporosis, and she was started on weekly alendronate, which she took faithfully along with calcium and vitamin D supplements for the ensuing four years up until the time that she presented to the emergency room. Her exam was completely normal, uh, no, nothing except severe back pain, and I did a very thorough lab workup for secondary causes and nothing uh, was revealed and she had um, negative cancer screening testing uh, in an ongoing way. Well, here was her uh, bone density by DEXA uh, at the age of 53 when she had those rib fractures. And you can see she was markedly osteoporotic at the L-spine. She was also osteoporotic by T-scores at the femoral neck and moderately osteopenic at the total hip. Four years later, after four years of alendronate and when I saw her in the office, her L-spine was still negative 3.3, her femoral neck negative 2.4, and you can see the total hip. So when I did the arithmetic, she'd had a 5% improvement at the spine and almost a 6% at the femoral neck. So in fact, she, she had technically responded to bisphosphonate therapy. But I want you to think about her as we go through this lecture and what you might do in, in terms of uh, treating her. I'd like to start first with just a very high-level view of, of this clinical practice guideline that I, I had the opportunity to work on uh, for the Endocrine Society uh, to go over drug management of osteoporosis in postmenopausal women. This was a, a big effort. Uh, the guideline is based on two large systematic reviews that synthesize data from over 100 trials. It included data on nearly 200,000 postmenopausal women in these trials, mean age 66, the uh, majority white, and the average duration of the trials, sort of two to four years. Now, the meta-analyses that were used, um, that were incorporated uh, on these data, were twofold. One was a direct comparison with placebo, and then the other was a combination of direct and indirect comparisons, or what's called a network approach. This was considered, uh, is considered a very state-of-the-art uh, technique for meta-analyses. And then finally, the grade system out of McMaster University was used to calibrate each of the recommendations uh, in this guideline. Now, the algorithm, I'll show you it in a moment, is based on four important kind of management principles. And I think we use these every day in practice, but just to make it very clear, we start with a determination of the risk of future fractures in the patient that we have in front of us. And you use whatever is the correct, uh, appropriate country-specific assessment tool. And for the US, it's generally the FRAX algorithm. Of course, we incorporate patient preferences into any treatment regimen we're going to pick. And then we recommend nutritional and lifestyle interventions and fall preventions really as part of any regimen uh, that we're going to use. 
And then finally, I think it's critically important to appreciate that there are multiple pharmacologic therapies that we now have that reduce fracture rates in women at high risk, and the um, safety and risk-benefit profiles are certainly acceptable. So what did this guideline put forward as a way to risk stratify? Well, we start with um, bone density by DEXA and then calculate 10-year fracture risks by FRACS. And this guideline defined four risk categories, sort of the low risk woman, the moderate risk, the high risk, and the very high risk. And so that low risk woman has no fractures, good BMD and FRAC scores are all um, uh, uh, within an acceptable range. The moderate risk uh, woman has no fractures, but she's got a T-score between negative one and negative 2.5, but her FRAC scores again don't put her in the range where you might trigger therapy. And then the high-risk uh, patient is one who's got a prior spine or hip fracture, has T-scores below negative 2.5, and then does meet the criteria through FRAX uh, for considering therapy, either at the hip or uh, the 10-year uh, major osteoporotic fracture risk. And then the very high risk is multiple fractures uh, with T-scores below negative 2.5. So just a way to kind of think about how to risk stratify our patients. Now those um, meta-analyses that were done kind of are summarized on this one slide. And what we are looking at here are all the therapies um, on the left on the y-axis that we have for osteoporosis uh, really in the world. And then the dotted line is the relative risk of one and anything to the left, as you know, particularly if it doesn't touch that dotted line, is statistically significant uh, as, and capable compared to placebo of reducing fracture risk. And so I think you can appreciate without my reading all these names of the medications that most of the medications that we have approved for treatment of osteoporosis in the U.S. statistically significantly reduce the risk compared to placebo of vertebral fractures. Now, when we move to the middle here for the non-vertebral fractures, fewer agents do that, but there are quite a few that do. Hormone therapy does, teriparatide, denosumab, uh, residronate and alendronate and so forth, and abaloparatide, uh, uh, which I missed over here. And then finally, sort of the toughest bar, um, the hip fracture. Uh, you can see that there are several therapies in our armamentarium. Hormone therapy, in fact, uh, zolandronic acid, residronate, alendronate, uh, and denosumab, uh, all of them capable of reducing the risk of hip fracture compared to placebo. So this is kind of the, the bedrock, if you will, upon which this guideline is based. Now, what's, what I've shown you here is the algorithm that's published in that Endocrine Society guideline, and it starts with nutritional and lifestyle optimization for all postmenopausal women, determining the 10-year fracture risk, and then categorizing kind of as low to moderate risk over here on your left and high to very high risk over here on your right. And just uh, to, to take a moment, the low to moderate risk uh, patient is one that you're probably going to monitor over time every two to four years with a reassessment uh, of fracture risk and potentially moving over into this category, but potentially also staying over here. In the high to very high risk, all of these therapies that are boxed in blue are certainly candidate therapies for these patients. 
And then with that therapy comes each of the downstream effects. For example, a patient who um, is at high risk that you're going to treat for osteoporosis with bisphosphonates, she might be treated for three to five years with an oral uh, uh, drug. And then if she becomes low to moderate risk, go on a drug holiday with fracture risk assessment periodically. If she becomes high risk or loses bone, she may go back uh, onto therapy and so forth. If she's high risk at the end of that, you may continue therapy for another five to five years, uh, potentially, uh, with bisphosphonate or switch to another therapy. And then these um, about, um, anabolic therapies, which I'll have more to say about, do have kind of a very specialized uh, plan after their initial either two years of therapy for teriparatide or abaloparatide or one year of therapy for romosozumab. And denosumab is over here, five to 10 years of therapy is the typical course. Now, there are certainly patients who are intolerant or inappropriate for these therapies. And in, the, in those individuals, depending on age, for example, and other risk factors, you may use a CIRM, for example, you may use hormone therapy, or could even consider some of the drugs or uh, in this category, like uh, a CIRM or calcitonin and so forth. So kind of a one-stop um, way to kind of think about management of postmenopausal osteoporosis. Just two very quick slides on highlights of the, of the management recommendations overall. And I think the first one is probably the most important, which is um, a strong recommendation. When you use the word rec recommend, it means the data are strong. So level one evidence with four, um, four pluses behind it. And that recommendation is to treat women at high risk of fracture, especially those who've had a recent fracture uh, with the pharmacologic therapies I've already outlined because benefits outweigh risks. With the bisphosphonates, again, um, level one evidence and multiple uh, uh, pluses here because the data uh, base is strong. It's uh, an excellent agent as initial therapy uh, and really all four of these agents uh, reduce fracture risk. Uh, risk assessment is made after three to five years. And then over time during a holiday, for example, if there's a decline, one can uh, reinstitute therapy. Denosumab uh, is another excellent agent in patients at high risk for fracture. You can see level one evidence and four pluses uh, because the database on which that is uh, that statement is made is strong. We don't give a drug holiday uh, with denosumab because there's the potential for rebound fractures and rebound increases in bone turnover. Um, and therapy can be continued. And this is only at the level of suggest uh, for five to 10 years and then risk reassessed. In terms of the anabolic agents, and I'll have more to say about them, these are recommended uh, for women at very high risk of fracture, given for up to two years, and you can see strong evidence base, level one, and three, um, three pluses. And then in addition, after a two-year course of, of these therapies, it's recommended that anti-resorptive therapies be instituted to maintain the gains that occurred. And finally, romosozumab, I'll have more to say about it. Uh, again, a recommended for women at very high risk of fracture uh, for, up to, uh, for treatment uh, of up to one year, high level of uh, trial data, level one and three pluses. And I'll talk a little bit more about cardiovascular disease um, in that discussion. And then after, after a course, treatment with an anti-resorptive. 
And we, we don't have time to go into it, but this guideline also includes uh, recommendations with regard to um, these medications I've listed here. In addition, last year, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists came out with their guideline uh, for diagnosis and treatment of osteoporosis, again, based on reviewing clinical evidence and a grading by the task force of experts. And I'll point out to you that uh, Dr. Michael McClung was among those uh, experts who co-authored uh, these guidelines. A similar uh, evidence grading system used, they made 52 recommendations, so a very detailed uh, comprehensive review and answer 12 key questions. And we, we won't be able to go into those, but just know that this is a very uh, superb document as well. This is their algorithm, and it's very similar to the one I already presented to you. Risk assessment by DEXA, fracture history, FRAX calculation, evaluation for secondary causes of osteoporosis, correction of vitamin D deficiency, and then pharmacologic therapy along with lifestyle um, measures. And they, they categorized patients into two um, two very straightforward risk categories, the high-risk woman with no prior fractures, and then the very high-risk woman with prior fractures. And over here on your left in the sort of um, green, uh, the high-risk but no prior fractures, one might start with a bisphosphonate, um, denosumab, uh, uh, um, and then alternative therapy would be raloxifene or abandronate, reassessment on a regular basis. And if the patient is doing well, consider a drug holiday after a period of uh, treatment. Um, and if the patient prog progresses, uh, what you can do to assess compliance, for example, and then switching either to a parenteral therapy or something over here uh, on this side, the anabolic um, agents that are out there. On the, in the very high-risk group, consider a stronger initial therapy, potentially with abaloparatide, denosumab, romosozumab, teriparatide, and these are in alphabetical order. There's no hierarchy here, or at least it seemed to me that this was alphabetical order. And alternative therapies, of course, would be the bisphosphonates. And then yearly for the response to therapy. And then with each agent, one needs to think a little bit differently about how one treats downstream. But I think this is a very nice algorithm for working your way through different treatment regimens that you might select for that individual. So I think one of their uh, particular key questions I wanted to um, focus on uh, in this particular slide, and that is um, who needs treatment? And this is their recommendation 23. They grade that evidence as B. And um, the answer to that question really was, consider these groups to be at very high fracture risk. And I think this is concrete and very practical. So those patients who've had recent fractures within 12 months, that's a very high fracture risk group. Patients with fractures on approved therapies, again, marks you as someone who needs perhaps special attention. Someone with multiple fractures, patients who fracture on medications that we know are bad for bone, for example, glucocorticoids. Patients at very high risk for falls and patients with a history of injurious falls. And I make a little footnote here because I'm seeing more and more patients with Parkinson's disease who have you know, significant gait problems or patients with dementia who fall and have very significant skeletal and, um, and musculoskeletal injuries from those falls. Patients with very low T-scores and they chose a number less than negative three, 
And then for FRAC scores, those that are over 30% for the 10-year risk of a major fracture and over 4.5% for the 10-year risk of hip fractures. And I, I like these criteria because they put a little bit more uh, detail, a little bit more granularity to how we might assess our patients. So I wanted to talk a little bit about sort of two concepts of fracture risk, and I think these are gaining more and more traction uh, as we move forward, as this field becomes more uh, nuanced and sophisticated. And sort of one concept of fracture risk is the sort of the baseline risk that the patient presents to you. You know, the patient characteristics, the age, the time of menopause, things like that. The DEXA that that patient has and the FRAC scores that that um, patient presents. Okay, but then the other concept of fracture risk is what I, what's been termed the imminent or near-term fracture risk. And I think it's critical to really assess patients from both standpoints because they both tell us something that's highly informative. So what's this imminent near-term fracture risk? And that really refers to what, what that patient might be expected to experience over the next one to two years. So where does this concept come from? Well, about 20 years ago, Dr. Lindsay and his colleagues wrote a paper um, looking at women who'd had radiographic vertebral fractures that occurred in the prior year, known to occur in the prior year. And what they found was that the absolute risk for an incident fracture in the next year, in just the next 12 months, was 20% for those women who'd had a vertebral fracture, radiographic vertebral fracture in the prior year. This study from 2012 uh, looked at patients with multiple fractures, even if they were remote. And it was 50,000 women, you can see over the age of 55. And when they looked at the two-year incidence of fracture in those women, okay, uh, if you had no prior fracture, your rate in the next two years was 5%. If you had one prior fracture, it was 10%. And you can see it goes up with the number. And if you had three or more fractures, the risk of a fracture in the next two years was 25%, incredibly high. Okay, and then finally, this last study to just uh, share with you is one that came out in um, 2019, looking at um, women, almost 400,000 of them in, um, uh, on Medicare, who'd had an incident fracture, non-traumatic, and they looked at the rate of fractures in the ensuing five years. And just to summarize, uh, if you were, if you'd had a fracture um, uh, uh, as a Medicare claims uh, patient, you had a 10% risk of having another clinical fracture in the next year, 18% in the next two years, and 30% risk of a fracture over the next five years. So fractures beget fractures. These are their two-year data of imminent fracture risk by the age of the patient and the site of the initial fracture. And I think this is one of the most telling things right here. If you are a woman who has a spine fracture, it really doesn't matter what your age is. Over the next two years, you've got a 25% chance of having a subsequent fracture. So very high imminent fracture risk. And you can see the other fracture sites uh, are shown here. These are the five-year data uh, from that study. And, and this is the time uh, to a subsequent fracture uh, in those that had five years of follow-up. And again, this pink line is the vertebral fracture. And so over a five-year follow-up period, you have, if you have a vertebral fracture at the outset of joining this cohort, you've got about a 40% chance of having 
another fracture, osteoporotic fracture over the next five years. Hip fractures about 25% and pelvic fractures, I think, uh, which don't receive a lot of clinical attention, really are up there near 30%. So harbingers uh, of future fractures if that patient has um, uh, uh, a fracture when you are seeing them. So the high near-term fracture risk patient should probably be receiving more aggressive therapy than we're currently giving. And I would suggest to you that maybe the initial therapy should be with an anabolic agent for that particular kind of patient. And this concept is emerging, not yet folded into guidelines, but definitely emerging. So I'd like to turn in this um, last portion of my talk to the anabolic agents that we have for osteoporosis treatment. And these are very, these, these data, I think, and these trials are very exciting because these agents have the potential to kind of repair the micro damage. This is osteoporotic bone, and you can see micro fractures and micro cracks here. And anabolic agents have the potential to fix that microarchitecture. And that's why I think many of us who work in this area are so excited about them. So you know we have teriparatide, recombinant PTH 1 to 34. It's been in the clinic for 20, 20 years. We know it's effective at preventing spine and non-vertebral fractures. What's new in this area? Well, we don't have too many new trials, but um, we do have some good and important safety information, and that's that the FDA removed the black box warning on the label. Uh, of teriparatide, uh, the black box warning related to the osteosarcomas in rats. They also re removed the treatment limitation, uh, um, uh, which was previously two years of therapy that's been removed. And you can now consider a repeat course of therapy if the patient remains that or returns to being at high risk for fracture. So that's really the update regarding teriparatide. Lots of clinical experience with its use. And there are two other agents, though, that have been more recently approved and are gaining traction in the clinic. And one of those is a baloparatide. It's been out for about five years. And the other is romazosumab, which we've got just about two years of experience with. And with these agents, and I think the trial data will, will nicely support it, the sequence of therapy and getting it right uh, with respect to that sequence is incredibly important. So what's a balloparatide? I know most of you are internists and, and uh, individuals in practice and in training. This is an analog, a sort of designer analog, if you will, of the human PTH-related peptide 1 to 34. And the sequences for three of these um, peptides uh, schematically are shown here. And in blue, uh, blue lettering is a balloparatide. And I think you can appreciate it's got 100% identity with PTH-related protein in the first 21 amino acids. And then the sort of C-terminal portion of this peptide in the blue areas diverges from PTH-related protein. So it's very similar uh, to the PTH-related protein. Uh, and uh, it was designed uh, on the basis of that sequence with the idea that you would get anabolic action uh, of this peptide because PTH and PTHRP are both anabol anabolic. But by making these critical substitutions, you might dissociate the effects of PTH to stimulate bone resorption. Okay, so we call this a biased agonist of the receptor. It's biased in its actions downstream. It stimulates formation without resorption. So let's see how it behaves in clinical care. 
So this is just the structure of the phase three trial that um, established the efficacy of uh, abaloparatide and the trial was called active. And you can see it head-to-head -head compared uh, abaloparatide here at 80 micrograms by daily injection with placebo uh, and with teriparatide. Okay, and then that was an 18-month trial. And then in the extension, all of these patients in the two upper arms went on to uh, alendronate uh, weekly therapy. So that's the structure of the trial. So these are this is a summary. It's a busy slide, but it's a summary of the um, fracture out two several of the fracture outcomes from this active trial. And just remember, it only took 18 months to get. Uh, these effects. So if we start with morphometric new vertebral fractures, there was an 86% reduction in those new fractures compared to placebo. And that was the primary endpoint of the study. So it met its primary endpoint, highly statistically significant. When we look at non-vertebral fractures up here in the left in panel A, and abaloparatide is this orange line here compared to placebo and teriparatide, they got a 43% decrease in non-vertebral fractures versus placebo, also statistically significant. When they looked at all clinical fractures, also a 43% decrease with 18 months of abaloparatide therapy. And then finally, in panel C, the major osteoporotic fractures, the, the four fractures that are included in the FRAX algorithm when we count it up, there was a 70%, you can see this orange line here, 70% decrease in major osteoporotic fractures over 18 months of therapy. And this actually did outperform teriparatide uh, in that clinical trial. So it's a new peptide in, in the clinic. What did it do in terms of adverse events? What do we need to be on the lookout for? Dizziness was one of them, joint aches, back pain, nausea, those were the most common, but they were balanced. There was some hypercalcuria uh, in these patients, you can see about 10%. Um, serious adverse events were balanced. You can see the rate of those across the three groups. Discontinuations, a little bit more with the baloparatide, maybe some of these uh, side effects led there um, uh, compared to the others. And the overall incidence of hypercalcemia was actually less with the baloparatide compared to teriparatide, suggesting that they actually had dissociated the stimulation of resorption and the stimulation of formation of these peptides. So those were the adverse events they saw. Now, when the study got extended, when patients on placebo or a baloparatide went on to alendronate, uh, for up to four years. Uh, the data for vertebral fractures is shown here, and I've circled uh, what went on during that extension period. So during the extension, uh, patients um, on abalo who had been on abaloparatide followed by alendronate had an 87% relative risk reduction compared to those just on uh, almost two years of alendronate therapy. So that benefit is, uh, is maintained even compared to patients on active therapy. And if you look at the entire, um, the entire active study along with its extension, the relative risk reduction for vertebral fractures was very strongly significant at 84% relative risk reduction. When they looked at the other uh, fractures captured in the extension trial, patients who had received a baloparatide followed by a lendronate compared to the placebo followed by alendronate, there was a 
nearly 40% reduction in non-vertebral fractures, nearly a 34% reduction in all clinical fractures compared to uh, this gray line here for the placebo and alendronate. And then again, the major osteoporotic fractures captured by FRAX were reduced by approximately 50% in patients who'd had a course, an 18-month course of a baloparotide. So just hammering home the fact that the, tr the treatment sequence matters tremendously here and the carryover of benefits uh, from a course of uh, anabolic therapy really can be seen years later. And I think that's a very important message. So the final pathway to talk to you about is really a brand new one that we're targeting now in osteoporosis therapy, and that's the WINT pathway. And it's diagrammed schematically here in panel A. WINT is the ligand and it interacts with its receptor and co-receptor, frizzled and LRP5. It stimulates sort of a cascade of signaling that if you're an osteoblast, leads to new bone getting formed and bone resorption getting blocked. So you've got a dual effect of wind stimulation, and this is very important. Now, sclerostin is this little red um, circular molecule here, and it's normal job, and it's made in the osteocytes, which are the key cell uh, cells of bone. Sclerostin is a natural inhibitor of the wind pathway. So when it gets into the bone microenvironment, it blocks the interaction between Wnt and its receptor and downstream events, the pathway gets turned off and no new bone is formed. So if you develop a potent neutralizing antibody, um, romazosumab is its name, to neutralize this sclerostin um, molecule, you get sort of uh, unmitigated, if you will, Wnt signaling, you get an increase in new bone formation, on quiescent surfaces, and you get a decrease in bone resorption. So very potent and dual actions uh, taking place uh, with this particular intervention. Two trials to quickly review with you. The first is FRAME, uh, called FRAME. It was uh, 7,000 postmenopausal women who were randomized to either placebo injections once a month or um, romosozumab injections monthly for 12 months. And then everyone went into an open label extension with uh, denosumab, the rank ligand monoclonal antibody, and then into an extension study. So that's the structure of the frame study. What occurred with bone density in these patients? So if we look first at the lumbar spine and the upper curve are the women who received romosozumab followed by denosumab. You can see that after 12 months of romosozumab, these women had approximately 13% increases in spine bone density, and it went up to almost 18% at the end of 24 months. At the total hip in panel B, you can see the changes were 9% at the total hip and 7% at the femoral neck, really striking and very um, significant increases in BMD with just 12 uh, months and then follow on uh, 24 months uh, of therapy in this sequence, romosozumab to denosumab, compared to patients on placebo versus uh, 12 months of denosumab. What did this do in terms of fracture? Well, in the upper panels, you can see the new vertebral fracture data are captured. And for the first 12 months, when romosozumab um, in gold uh, was compared to placebo, there was a 73% reduction in new vertebral fractures in these women. 
And if you looked over the first 24 months over here, those who in green, those who received romazosumab followed by denosumab, compared to just 12 months of denosumab here in purple, you can see there was a 75% uh, relative risk reduction in new vertebral fracture. So very significant uh, fracture reduction for the vertebral fractures. In these two panels up below, there's the time to event analysis done for the first clinical fracture, and it's in red for the patients who got romazosumab. And you can see these curves separate well before 12 months, and they stay separated. So it takes longer to have a clinical fracture if you've received a course of romazosumab, and it takes longer to have a non-vertebral fracture in the same time to event analysis almost making statistical significance, but nonetheless an impressive separation of these curves. When they looked again long-term, now at 36 months uh, for all clinical fractures, there's almost a 30% reduction in those who received a course of romosozumab versus just denosumab and placebo in the early part of the trial. And similarly, non-vertebral fractures still reduced by an additional 20%. Uh, so I think the long-term benefit from uh, one year of anabolic therapy is very clear, even years into uh, therapy. One other trial to briefly review with you was called ARCH. And this actually was a superiority trial where romazosumab was compared to alendronate in the double-blind period, and then everyone went into open-label uh, alendronate. I'll point out to you that this was a very high risk and older population. Everyone had to have a fracture at baseline to get into this study. Similar BMD responses to what I've shown you from the FRAME study, 14% at the spine at 12 months, 15% over here at 36 months, and similarly at the hip, 6% at 12 months, 7% at 24 and 30, uh, 36 months. Uh, and when you look at the alendronate, and so th these are the women that received alendronate all the way through uh, for both the spine and the hip, you can see the responses in terms of BMD are about 50 to 60% uh, of the responses that you see with romosozumab followed by alendronate. And that's a very important point and I think helps to explain the fracture data, uh, which are shown here. So again, the incidence of new vertebral fractures over the first 12 months of that study, direct comparison, 37% difference uh, favoring romosozumab over alendronate. And over the first 24 months, almost a 50% relative risk reduction for new vertebral fractures with this course of romosozumab uh, compared to alendronate. Same time to first clinical fracture. It takes longer to have uh, one of those if you've received a course of romosozumab. And similarly, for the time to first non-vertebral fractures, it's taking longer to get there if you had a course of romosozumab. And finally, I think one of the most important outcomes of this study was a reduction in hip fractures. And those patients who received a course of romosozumab followed by alendronate, had about a 38% reduction in having a hip fracture compared to those on active treatment with alendronate for three years. And this was also statistically significant. So this agent is superior to alendronate in fracture reduction, and these are the data that support that claim. What about adverse events? Uh, these are the ones from the FRAME study, that first one I presented to you. They were balanced in terms of both uh, regular adverse events and then serious adverse events over 24 months. 
there were more injection site reactions uh, with this monoclonal antibody compared to placebo. And the uh, serious adverse events that were cardiovascular were also balanced across the 24 months, including death. Now, they looked very carefully at osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femur fractures because, if you recall, this agent also has an effect to, to inhibit bone resorption. So it does have anti-resorptive properties. And there were only one or two of these uh, throughout the whole study, so no signal uh, for those side effects. Now, what about the ARCH study? This is the table taken from the New England Journal uh, of Medicine paper. You can see adverse events were balanced um, overall. Serious adverse events were also balanced. But when it came to adjudicated serious cardiovascular events, there was about a 30% difference uh, in uh, romososumab group versus placebo. When they looked at cardio, uh, cardiac ischemic events, that was about two and a half fold difference, you can see, but the number of events was really small. Six in the alendronate group, 16 over here. The odds ratio of a um, cerebrovascular event um, was about 2.2 uh, uh, fold increase. You can see the um, uh, number of events is also small here, and you can see the number of deaths. So the FDA spent a lot of time thinking about and adjudicating all of these events very carefully. And they decided to approve the drug, but put a black box warning on it about the possibility of increasing the risk of MI, stroke, and, and death. You've seen the actual numbers. And they recommend that treatment not be initiated in patients who've had an MI or stroke within the preceding year. And if one of those events occurs to, to discontinue therapy. So that's the nature of the label at this point in time. We've kind of come full circle here, um, and I want to come back to this algorithm and sort of pose the question, who are the candidates that we see in the clinic now who, who might be good for anabolic therapies? And I would suggest to you that there are actually a fair number of high-risk categories as we go through treating our patients. Either they may start as high-risk to very high-risk or may have minimal response to bisphosphonates or fracture and become high risk over here. Or after therapy, for example, with denosumab, they may, um, they may still be uh, a high risk for fracture and you may come back to considering an anabolic therapy in those patients. So I think it's probably a larger number of patients than you might think uh, um, about um, that you have in your clinic probably more than we all of us uh, uh, anticipate. So let's come back to that 57-year-old woman uh, with the history of rib fractures that I presented to you at the beginning of the talk, low BMD, religious uh, therapy with alendronate for four years, but hospitalized with a painful L1 fracture and also found to have a T7 fracture, who I would suggest to you is at high risk for imminent fracture. These are the data on her uh, bone density over time. Here she was when I saw her five years ago. These were her bone densities. We initiated, because that was the agent that we really only had at that time, uh, teriparatide therapy for two years. And you can see the bone density changes uh, that she experienced. She then went on to denosumab as a consolidation and follow-on therapy. And you can see the uh, bone density improvements at the spine that she experienced, 21% overall. 
about 6% at the femoral neck and a very modest 4% at the total hip. And I'm happy to say that after, uh, f after five years uh, of caring for her, she's had no further fractures. So just a, just a uh, closing the loop, if you will, uh, on that particular patient. So just to conclude, I think treatment decisions that we make now really should be based both on overall fracture risks or the 10-year numbers that we get from the FRAX algorithm and consideration of eminent uh, fracture risk over the next one to two years in that patient. I think the approach to high and very high-risk patients is changing. I think we now appreciate that sequences of therapy matter a great deal, that you see faster responses and prolonged benefits uh, in terms of counting fractures with a course of anabolic therapy. And I've tried to highlight some of the differences among the anabolics that we currently have and suggest that ideally we use them appropriately, we use them sequentially, and we follow that therapy by an antiresorptive. And I think in the end, we will achieve the highest uh, risk-benefit ratio for our patients. And with that, I'll stop and be happy to uh, take, uh, take your questions. Thank you very much for your kind attention and again for this wonderful opportunity to present to you today. Many, many thanks for your for your talk, Dr. Showback, um, and uh, bringing your your intense expertise in this area. Um, I'm sure some more questions and posts will come through, but I'll just get us started. Um, first off, a comment from our colleague, uh, Dr. Dave Gilbert. Um, noting, Dr. Kammer hoped the lectureship would inform and inspire colleagues. Your presentation would make Cam very, very happy. So thank you. Um, Makes me feel very, very good. <laughs> and uh, just a, a follow-up question. Um, what is the expense of the new drugs and are they covered uh, by third-party insurers? It's a, it's a very good question and a very important question. And that's why I think risk stratification uh, is so important. And I think having these guidelines to back up decisions that we make are, are very helpful as well. So the costs. So teriparatide has become uh, more expensive over time, in fact. Um, but there is a generic version that's actually quite a bit cheaper. And I think we're talking about something in the range, and cheap is a relative term, of course, uh, something in the range of probably about $1,800 or $2,000 a month. So pretty significant. Abaloparatide is, um, and these are California prices, so I don't know, maybe you're getting a better bargain in Oregon. Um, Abaloparatide is probably in that $1,600 to $1,800 a month range. So uh, not trivial. Um, and um, uh, romasosumab, I've, I've had difficulty getting the exact number, but a year, a a, uh, the cost of a year course of therapies, I think about $26,000. So your, your question is on point. These are expensive therapies. And um, why, you know, I think the important thing to realize from looking at all the evidence that you know, these task forces uh, looked at, really we do have multiple agents uh, that can be deployed. Uh, I think for, for example, the patient that I presented to you, this is a, a working woman. This is uh, someone with many, many years of life expectancy ahead of her who wants the, the best possible outcomes. I think those are situations where um, one would take that extra, uh, take on that extra expense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for your comments. Always considerations for every individual patient. Right. Um, 
Along those lines, um, you discussed the importance of sequence um, and maybe have you flesh that out just a bit more, I think indicating a role for an anabolic therapy, preferably first, followed by anti-resorptive. Um, and just to be clear, if say a patient has been on anti-resorptive therapy and perhaps failed, um, then is it okay to revisit an anabolic? Absolutely. Uh, I think that what we what we know, I didn't show any of the tri trial data on this, but what we know uh, is that there may be a bit of a delayed response if they've been on an, um, bisphosphonate, for example, for a long time. You might see a bit of a delayed response to teriparatide, for example, or a baloparatide. But eventually, after 18 months of therapy, the patient uh, should get to where they might, where the treatment naive patient might get. Now, a treatment with denosumab, because it is so very potent and because of its unique mechanism of action, um, when you give an anabolic agent after that, I think one, uh, particularly the data I'm thinking of are with teriparatide, one may not see as robust a response to teriparatide in that, in that particular setting because uh, of the mechanism of action of denosumab to suppress osteoclast activity, but but the cells seem to still be in the bone. And so there at the spine, things seem to be okay, but at the hip, bone density sometimes goes down uh, during uh, uh, a round of therapy with teriparatide. So that sequence might not be the favored sequence. What we don't know is whether, for example, in that individual um, if, who's received denosumab, whether romosozumab might be um, a potential agent that would have a, uh, a good effect um, because it does have both the dual action of stimulating formation and blocking resorption. But that is the one sequence, denosumab followed by teriparatide, which doesn't look like the best sequence to go after. Great, thank you. Um, the questions continue to, to flow in, so we'll just press forward. Um, many patients are started on denosumab due to renal insufficiency. Um, after five to 10 years, uh, what do you transition to if osteoporosis persists and renal function is no better? Yes, it's, uh, this, is a, this person hit the nail on the head. This is a question that comes up so often in our clinic. You really don't have a great option uh, for transitioning because you um, you can't if, if 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 renal insufficiency prevented you from starting a bisphosphonate, certainly it often doesn't get any better and allow you to get away uh, from using a bisphosphonate. One might consider if it's not severe renal insufficiency, half dose every other week. This is all completely off label. Uh, most patients with chronic kidney disease aren't good candidates for drugs like raloxifene or uh, estrogen, and many don't want to take them. They have high vascular risk. You end up uh, most of the time um, uh, continuing the denosumab or stopping it and, and paying the consequences. Um, I have maybe once or twice used um, injectable calcitonin if it was really a high-risk situation. It's a very tough bind uh, that you're in. And it is difficult. It's very difficult to use denosumab um, uh, safely in chronic kidney disease patients because they have a pretty significant risk, depending on how advanced their chronic kidney disease, of having um, hypocalcemia as a side effect um, of therapies. Many times it's not 
clinically, um, it doesn't present as symptomatic hypocalcemia, but oftentimes the calcium will drop to levels of seven, you know, low eight, six, uh, and you have to you have to monitor them extra carefully. So it it's a very treating patients with osteoporosis and chronic kidney disease is definitely a very special situation. Lots of challenges there. Great, thank you. Thanks for your comments. Um, uh, another question you noted um, that the uh, duration of teriparatide um, has now been extended such that you don't have to limit it to only two years. And might you comment on um, when you might extend it longer and, and whether a uh, you would have a, a wait time um, to determine a retreatment? Right. I mean, this is a great question, and I hope somebody is going to do a study that will really inform us about the, uh, you know, the the specifics uh, that would be the right answer to that question. I don't extend it for three years, typically, for example. Um, the usual course I start with is 18 to 24 months because most of the benefits from the trials really occurred in the first um, 12 to 18 months. So what I will usually do is a course of probably 18 to 24 months of therapy, then consolidate usually with the bisphosphonate, and then depending on how the patient does over time or if more fractures occur, then I would intervene. And I'd probably wait, you know, one to two years. And it's not based on hard data, but it does take the the cells in the bone to kind of, you need a population of stem cells or uh, early osteoblasts to respond to teriparatide. And um, as, as patients get older and older, those cells are in short supply. So I like to wait at least one to two or three or three years or longer before I would give a second course. And what we can tell from the limited data we have on these second courses is that the amount of response is less. But if the patient tolerates it and it makes sense from the standpoint of potentially a fracture or helping to heal a fracture or something like that, I think it's a reasonable possibility. But I haven't used it repetitively a lot. Great, thank you. Thanks for your expertise in these emerging areas. Um, I'm going to pair a question um, regarding alendronate. Um, so first off, um, just a question about when you take a bisphosphonate holiday, how long should the holiday be? And then is the typical course of treatment, if resumed, again, five years? Um, and then maybe just pairing that with um, any comments regarding concern for osteonecrosis of the jaw, which frequently emerges among our patients, and specifically whether oral therapy is better than IV, um, and whether the dental history matters. So a little potpourri of bisphosphonate questions. Lots, lots, lots of questions uh, within there. Um, and so I'll just say that um, with regard to the drug holiday, there's the, the information that's in the literature are very small studies on this. Um, usually I, I monitor bone density. Sometimes I'll monitor bone turnover markers in the higher risk patient. And then um, once bone density starts to fall or the, uh, and or the turnover markers go up or a fracture occurs, retreatment, um, I initiate retreatment. It might be with the same agent. It might be with an anabolic agent, for example, if a fracture um, has occurred. The treatment course, um, Boy, that is a difficult one because really I don't think we have any trial data where you um, 
do a drug holiday and then you re restart therapy. Um, but usually I would give it another three to five years looking at what happens to bone density uh, during that uh, reach and what happens to the patient clinically during that retreatment period. Now, the other one of the other questions you asked is related to the different bisphosphonates that we have, because we have four of them. Are there differences in the duration of the drug holiday uh, with the different agents? And I would say um, I use mostly um, alendronate and uh, zolendronic acid in my practice. So my, my experience is the greatest with those two. And I would say that they are probably the ones where you can have the longest drug holiday. And maybe that's three, four, maybe five years because they have a, uh, they're more potent in terms of their adherence to bone and um, the effects last longer. Residronate um, comes off the bone perhaps a little bit faster. And so the drug holiday might be more like two or three years with that agent. And similarly, potentially with the bandronate. So that's how I would approach drug holiday uh, in terms of the different bisphosphonates. Now, the question about uh, osteonecrosis of the jaw uh, specifically, uh, the, the questioner is right. The duration of bisphosphonate uh, therapy is uh, tightly linked to the occurrence of it. Um, and so dental history and dental health to me matters a great deal. Um, I don't like to even start an oral bisphosphonate if the patient isn't under regular dental care and if, that, if, if dental issues aren't addressed prior to the institution of therapy. So I believe a lot in, um, in really good uh, dental care and that's, a, that's tough often, but yeah, nonetheless, that's the, that's the ideal I, I'm, I'm striving for. Um, and um, the second course of this, if, if a patient has serious dental issues and, and we're, we're thinking, and they've been on a drug holiday, then I'm going to be thinking about, and I want to restart therapy, and then I may think about an anabolic therapy. I'm going to think about something that the dentist is going to be happy that I've started in that patient. Um, and hopefully it will help with dental bone and hopefully it will help with uh, other other areas. But I, I agree with you. It is tough uh, if there are serious dental issues and there certainly can be uh, in these patients and, and managing both things. Um, uh, and we don't have a lot of data on numbers in terms of absolute risk of ONJ with second courses of therapy. I, I hope, you know, New papers will come out, you know, sort of observational studies on that. But most of the time, people refrain from using uh, those therapies if there is a case of active osteonecrosis of the jaw in a patient on uh, with osteoporosis. In the cancer, in the limited experience I have with patients with cancer and osteonecrosis of the jaw, sometimes the oncologists uh, decide to go on and continue therapy because of the metastatic lesions and so forth. So it's a very individualized patient preference and important discussion with the patient as well. Great. Um, well, I want to be respectful of our time. We have passed uh, nine o'clock. So thanks so much for, for sharing your expertise, uh, Dr. Shovak, and a real tribute um, to, to Dr. Kammer. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation and your attention and just the wonderful questions. Much appreciated. Wish I could be there with you. <laughs> <Yeah>. Next time. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank Welcome back. <laughs>